Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black um, hardback Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours to take. We want to get a Bible in everybody's hands. Um, but also the passage will be projected here above. Uh, here at Cornerstone, we like to stand because it is our act of worship as we read and receive God's word. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? from Romans chapter 4, reading from verses 13 to 25. People of God, now give your fullest attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. But the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I have the privilege uh, this morning to introduce our guest speaker. Uh, he's a familiar face to us as he and his wife and his family have been worshiping uh, here at Cornerstone for a few months now. Uh, Dan is a good friend of mine. Uh, we attended Westminster Theological Seminary together. Uh, we both served at the English Ministry of Yangsang Presbyterian Church. And so those two experiences alone means we've both served and survived pretty much two wars. Um, I uh, love and respect Dan, uh, especially the way that he handles uh, the word of God. And so, uh, as I said last week, I'm always, um, you know, pretty protective of the pulpit. And so um, yielding it to our brother Dan uh, means that I really trust uh, how he will open the word of God and preach the gospel to us. Uh, Dan was born and raised uh, in, in Baltimore. Uh, he moved to Philly for seminary. He not only got his uh, master divinity uh, while here, but he also got a wife. Um, he met his wife, Christina, uh, at Youngsang, and um, they moved down to Northern Virginia to serve a church plant uh, called New City. Uh, some of you may remember uh, Pastor Paul John, who spoke at our retreat a few years ago. Uh, but God has since then brought Dan and his 
his family back to this area, and currently he works in business development. And he and his wife, Christina, are blessed with two children, uh, two cute children. We see them downstairs, Josiah, uh, Jay, as he calls them, and uh, Penelope, which uh, they call him or call her Penny. Um, and Dan had uh, this fun fact, which is, uh, if you get to know him, it's so true. He said everywhere that he's lived uh, in the past, I think, decade or so, has been within 10 minutes of a Popeye's chicken. Um, and so whether by God's grace or intentionally, that's been the case. So uh, as Dan comes to open up God's word, let's welcome him warmly. Morning, everybody. This is Mike. Okay, sorry, I'm not used to like this. Is what we call a Britney Spears mic. I'm not used to this. This is kind of cool. Uh, morning, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's really uh, an honor to, to preach to guest preach here at Cornerstone. And uh, thank you so much for everybody who has welcomed my family and I in the short time we've been here. We've really been blessed. Um, thank you. Uh, but before we get started, I want to share this thought, uh, which is that. One of my favorite authors, her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Um, she was a lesbian and activist in the LGBT community. She was a professor at Syracuse University. And um, she was someone who like absolutely despised the church and never wanted to step foot in there. But through an interesting uh, course of events, she ended up dialoguing with the pastor and eventually came to a point where she visited church. And um, she writes about that day when she first steps inside the church. She writes this. She says, um, I'll never forget that morning uh, because I woke up from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later was sitting in the pews of the church. And she continues, she says, I don't give this detail, I don't explain this to be crass, right? But I explain this because you never know the terrain that someone has walked to come worship the Lord this morning. And that is something that has stuck with me for a long time. And so if you are new and you're visiting Cornerstone today, I want to say thank you so much for coming. We're so glad to have you here. And I hope that you guys stick around afterwards to dialogue with the pastor, the elders, who are fantastic, fantastic men, and that you would stick around and hopefully fellowship so that we might get to learn a little bit more about your terrain. And for those of you who have been regularly, regularly attending or are members, um, again, thank you so much for welcoming my family and I, and we look forward to continuing to get to know each other's strains better, that we might serve and love one another better. Uh, with that being said, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace. As we open the word this morning, <clears throat> remind us of your incredible goodness towards us in Jesus Christ, that when we believe that our stories are rewritten, and now when people recall and think of us, that we are not written of as weak, deplorable, sinful, pitiful people, but rather we are now seen as holy, perfect, wholly justified because of Christ. Give us grace to believe. Give us grace to see these truths this morning. Give us grace to humble ourselves and put our trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to talk about pirates, right? Uh, pirates. And you might, yes, I said the word pirates, kind of weird. But the reason why I say this is because the, consider for a moment um, uh, the famous pirates that you know. Um, maybe like Blackbeard, right? Maybe Long John Silver, which is a fast food chain down the road. Um, Captain Jack Sparrow, right, uh, from the Pirates of the Caribbean or Caribbean, however you pronounce it. Um, but there, there's a pirate that you may not have heard of, and her name is Madam Chan. Now, Madam Ching was an Asian woman. She was Chinese. And many regard her to be the most successful pirate of all time. To give you a comparison, Blackbeard commanded four ships and about 300 pirates. 
Madam Ching, on the other hand, commanded 1,800 ships and over 100,000 pirates. And you might be wondering, like, well, why, why am I telling you about Madam Ching? Because she was, and then so, to, sorry, to continue on about how successful she was, she was so good that she negotiated her own surrender, but the terms were full pardon, and on top of that, I get to keep all my quote-unquote earnings. So she retired as a free woman with all of the plunder that she had stolen, right? And she was such a pain in the government that the government said, fine, we'll do it, okay. And so she died surrounded by her loved ones. Now, why am I talking to you about Madam Ching this morning? The reason why I talk about her is because anytime someone writes about Madam Ching, they don't worry themselves about the other details of her life. Instead, they always write the fact, they go out of their way to show that Madam Ching was the perfect pirate. And similar to today, what we're going to see today is that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, that it's not the details of our weakness that will be remembered, but rather we will be seen, we are deemed, our stories are rewritten, and we will be known and remembered as holy and completely justified, perfect in God's sight. So three points to draw this out. Three points to draw this out. The first is, uh, why do we need faith to be justified? Why do we need faith to be justified? The second point is, what should this faith look like? And the third is, why is that really good news for us? Again, why do we need faith to be justified? What should this faith look like? And why is that really good news for us? So, to begin, why do we need faith to be justified? In Romans chapter 4, Paul is the, the Apostle Paul who writes uh, Romans, he is doing something, he is explaining why we need faith to be justified, but to see this in its full context, you have to know a little bit about Romans up to so far, or up to this point. In Romans chapter 1 to 3, Paul lays out this argument about why we need faith to be justified using logic. He uses logic. And that argument, which many of you are familiar with, but in case you don't know or in case you've forgotten, it goes like this. It says, God created the world. And we owe our obedience and we owe him our love. But instead, we've all gone and done whatever we wanted. We rebelled. And you want proof of that case in point? Look at God's law, which we refer to as the Ten Commandments. Hold yourself against that law. And how many of us can say, yes, I have completely and wholly fulfilled the law? And so Paul says it's not by working double time. It's not by working overtime in which we can work our way into God's goodness. It is impossible. So what does God do? He takes the initiative. He takes the initiative. He sends his son, Jesus Christ. And now all who believe in him are, and believe in his finished work will be justified. See, Paul says that by logic, you cannot work your way into the goodness of God. That's Romans 3. Romans chapter 4 says, here is the proof from history. You see, Romans chapter 1 to 3 is, here is the proof from logic. Logic demands it. Romans chapter 4, history proves it. And what does he do? He takes us back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, he says, or God, the text says, that Abraham believed and he counted it to him as righteousness. What Paul is doing is he's showing that this idea about believing in Christ to be righteous is not like plan B. It's not like the first plan failed and so God is scrambling up another way to redeem his people, to justify his people. He's saying that this way, this idea of justifying by faith has always been the case. And so he takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed and he was counted as righteous. Now, you might be wondering, like, why, why does this matter? Why is this important for me? 
Now, Pastor Andrew did a great job in his DNA series, Gospel DNA series, Cornerstones Foundation series, explaining why faith by by just sorry why faith alone for justification is such a critical doctrine, is so critical for our lives. So I'm not going to rehash that. Instead, I'm going to encourage you to take a listen to that. And instead, I want to draw out an application that's not directly correlated here, but I think is something that is applicable, especially for me. This idea that God is a God who is consistent, that God, the way he worked then, in the beginning, is the way he works here in the time of Romans, is the way he works now, today, with all of us here. This idea of the consistency, the constancy, the perseverance, the reliability of God, this idea is something that I think that all of us long for, need, desperately desire in our God. So to give an example here, and I say this with a heavy heart, uh, Elder Sam uh, prayed about it this morning, but um, Pastor Denny Kwan, many of you have heard that he is currently fighting for his life, and um, I know that as soon as many of you or all of you heard, you immediately prayed. You immediately started praying, Lord, please hear us. But more than that, what I was amazed at was that then social media kicked in and on Facebook and Instagram, and that's all I have because I'm not that cool. But in those two platforms, my fa- the feed was flooded with people crying out, please pray, please pray for Pastor Denny Kwan. Because when we pray, God hears us. When we pray, God hears our cries. And I, and I read that and I was thinking like, why is everybody so confident that when we pray, God will hear us? How is it that people are so certain, so sure that God will hear us when we pray? And I think it's because of this, because of the constancy, the consistency, the reliability of God. The same way that when we pray because of Christ, God will always show up. God will always be present. God will consistently be there. He doesn't take off days. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't fluctuate based on the time or the seasons or the circumstances. He is this consistent, reliable God. And while it's an attribute or a trait of God that we long for, we love, and we desire in God, sometimes, sometimes, and I say this gently, sometimes it's, an, it's, it's a trait in our lives that we either don't really think about or we don't like. Let me, let me give an example from my, my personal experience here, my personal life here. Um, when I stepped down from ministry two years ago, to my shame, one of the first thoughts I had was, I'm free. You know, it was, I'm free. Um, Sundays are mine. I can go on vacation on Sundays like all the normal people. And it was one of the first thoughts that I had. And so that year, my family and I, we visited family. We went on a few trips. And we missed more Sundays that year than we've ever had before. And it trickled down to our community group because our community group met on Sundays as well. And then at the end of that CG cycle, right, we call it CG cycle, um, we had like a debrief. We met with the families, we met with the members of our CG, and I, and I talked to them and asked them how CG went this year. And one family said, you know, Dan, this year CG was tough for us. It was rough. 
And in my mind, I was like, really? Because it was the best year yet for us, right? And they were like, yeah, it was rough. And then they explained so gently, like, hey, for us, and I think for everybody involved in CG, it takes great sacrifice. Because for everyone who comes, it means loss of time. I, I, I like you guys, but I like other people better, right? Like, it's a loss of time. I could be doing something else. It is a huge commitment because I have to pack my kids up and then I've got to take them out and I've got to prepare. And then they said that their kids also miss a nap and they are miserable later, making the parents miserable. For those who are hosting, you have to clean and then you got to maybe cook and then you got to clean again. And then again, for everyone involved, it means that tomorrow you have to prepare for work. So now you don't get to rest like you wanted to. And then, or you got school tomorrow or whatever it is you've got for the day ahead. If you've got older children, you got to pack their bags, you have to clean them up and you got to get them ready out the door. But now that becomes a late night venture as opposed to doing it early in the afternoon. And they said, look, we, we thought that everybody here is saying, look, I am willing, I am okay making this sacrifice because we are a community. He said, we thought the idea was we are okay giving these things up because we care. And they said, when our group was inconsistent or flaky, they said, we couldn't help but wonder, do they care? And I listened to that and I struggled with it. I became very defensive. But I realized, like, look, this idea of the consistency, the reliability, the constancy of God is something that I love about my God, that I long for, I need in my God. And yet here is this brother, this sister, who is calling me to grow in consistency, to grow in my reliability and my constancy, and I'm fighting, I'm struggling. I don't want it necessarily to take hold in my own life. Now, the, the application here is not, okay, stop missing Sundays. The application is not, stop, don't miss CG. That's not the application here. I think, rather, the application looks something like this. If this trait about God, the constancy, the reliability, the consistency of God is something that we love and long for and need in our God, and if part of growing as believers means that we're looking more and more like our God, growing in his likeness, then is it possible that God is calling us, all of us, to greater consistency? In areas such as with friends and family, not flaking. We live in an era of text messaging, and because of that, saying, oh, I can't make it, something came up, is very common. But to fight to be consistent, reliable with our friends, to fight and be consistent to protect our Sunday mornings for Sunday worship, to fight and struggle to protect even the community groups and care groups that we belong to. Is it possible that God is calling us to greater consistency? Something to think about. Now, kind of bringing it back, why do we need faith to be justified? Because the way God saved then is the way he saved now. Because God is a God who is consistent, constant, why do we need faith? Because the way God saved then is the way he saves today. And it brings us to our second point. Okay, so I need faith, but what should this faith look like? What should this faith look like? And, it's, and Paul tells us in verse 16, he tells us that, look, this promise should come, it is given to all who, what? Share Abraham's faith. In other words, what should this faith look like? Well, it should look like Abraham's faith. 
And then the question becomes, well, what does Abraham's faith look like? Well, if we look at verses 17 to 22, if you can go ahead and display it up there, let me just read this to us again really quickly. It says, as it is written, I have made you, you being Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he'd been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it's a lot of words, but if I could try to summarize it here, what does it mean, or what should our faith look like? It should look like Abraham's. Well, what was Abraham's faith like? If I could put it this way, it means that Abraham looked at the reality before him, looked at the situation, the circumstances of his life, looked at the situation of his life, and he interpreted very differently. Abraham looked at his reality and he interpreted it very differently. And if I could take a step back here to kind of understand what this means. When God creates the world, he doesn't just create and then step back and say, good luck, figure it out. He creates the world, and then he interprets the world that he created. That's why when he creates man and woman, he distinguishes, you are man, you are woman. And then he gives the creation purpose, goals, right? This is God interpreting his creation. And us, man and woman, being made in the image of God, we are all interpreters like our God. So this is, the why when, uh, this is why when you receive a text message or an email and it says, yes, period. You don't see that and take in raw data, you see the period. And you go, what's with that period? Is that, is that passive aggressive? Is that, did I do something wrong? What's wrong with you, right? Like, uh, what, what is with that period, right? And you, and, you, and you go through all these weird, you know, it was just yes, period. But you interpret that period. And then you say, okay, I see your period, and I raise you two more. Okay, dot, 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 send, right? And you, you raise them, right? And is, we are constantly interpreting the world. That's why when you eat food, you don't just eat food. Yes, I have sustenance, energy, yes. You evaluate, you interpret. This is good, this is delicious, this is terrible. I'll never do this again. This is why when two people or a bunch of people look at green paper, money, very different reactions come about. Some people look at money and they say, cool, all right, okay. And then some people look at money and say, that is life itself, because how much of that is directly tied to my self-worth? We are constantly interpreting all the time the world around us. This is why when we get into fights with our spouse or loved ones or even coworkers, it always begins with what? I, I didn't mean it that way. Why? Because the other person has taken your words and interpreted it, right? And that's why fights often ensue. We are constantly interpreting the world around us. Now, let's think about the rebellion really quickly in this context. So, God creates the world, and then he tells Adam and Eve, this tree right here, this one right here, this one is off limits. And the thing is, there's nothing inherently wrong with that tree. There's nothing wrong with the tree. Instead, what has God done? God tells Abraham, uh, Adam and Eve, I'm interpreting this tree as off limits. 
What do Adam and Eve do? What is the core of rebellion? What is the core of faithlessness? They look at that tree and they reinterpret it apart from God. They look at it, a tree that God has interpreted, and they interpret it apart from God and say, no, this is fine for us to eat, and they eat. This is the core of our rebellion when we look at the world around us and we interpret it apart from God. Now, take a look at Abraham. What does he do? Or what does the text say? It tells us that in hope, he believed against hope. He looks at his own body, and the typical interpretation is, I'm old, man. I'm old. Let me just die peacefully. But instead, he looks at his reality and he interprets it after God's own heart. And what does God say? In your old age, I'm going to give you a son and nations will be born from you. And what does Abraham do? He interprets his reality like that. That is what it means to have a faith like Abraham. When we look at the reality around us and we interpret it after God's own heart. So for example, to give you an example of what that might look like in our lives. So um, I think many of us drive and when we drive, a lot of times people do foolish things, oftentimes to us. And when somebody cuts us off or someone does something really dangerous in the road that endangers the life of myself or my family or my friends, we get very, very upset. And in that moment, all kinds of colorful language comes out and all kinds of interesting reactions come out. All kinds of fingers get raised, right? And, and it's in that moment that, you know, like, uh, and that is the, what we call the typical interpretation. And I'm not better than you. I, that is my interpretation all the time. Um, and my job is to figure out how I can let this person know that they were wrong. But instead, if we were to reinterpret after God's own heart, is to look at that and say, God in his sovereignty has allowed this situation to happen. Why? Is it because that in this little, in this little arena, in this tiny little moment, that maybe God is teaching me what it means to be patient, loving, gracious to someone who doesn't deserve it? to a complete stranger. Maybe in this tiny little moment, God is calling me to grow up and to look like and to imitate the living God, right? Or to, uh, to, to bring out or to draw out of me the same kind of love, the same kind of grace, the same kind of mercy and patience that has been given to me in Christ. It's, it's the reason, or, and, and another personal example is when I stepped down from ministry, I started looking for jobs, and I must have sent out like over 60 uh, you know, applications in the course of a couple weeks, and I heard nothing back. I heard absolutely nothing back, and I was like so broken about it, so messed up about it. I was like, uh, it's probably because they saw like Masters of Divinity and was like, this, this is a Harry Potter degree, what is this? You know, like, um, this, this, this guy's crazy, like that doesn't exist, right? Um, but, I mean, I made all kinds of excuses, but at the end of the day, I mean, I was a broken man because I was like, nobody wants me. I suck. I'm a bum. But to look at that situation and interpret it after God's own heart, yes, you're a bum. But for this bum, God came and gave and surrendered his son, bled and died, raised for my justification, and now I stand, not because of me, as son of the living king, to look at our realities, to look at our situations, our circumstances, and to interpret them after God's own heart. This is what it means to have a faith like Abraham. This is what our faith should look like. Now again, if you're anything like me, this is problematic. Because I don't do that. And I don't know about you, but that's not easy for me. And that's not what I do often. And I fail at that more often than I don't. 
But here's why that's really good news for us. Here's why that's really good news for us. Which brings us to our third point. This is why it's really good news for us. And you might be thinking, like, how? How is it possible that this is good news? Well, let's recap really quickly. Why do we need faith to be justified? Why do we need faith to be justified? Because it's the way God worked then, and it's the way he works now. What should our faith look like? It should look like Abraham's. All right, and this is good news for us. How? It's good news because if you actually go back and look at Abraham, like really look at Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, God does this amazing thing. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and he tells him, look, I'm going to make many nations from you, from your offspring. And then he, does, he, 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 displays a co- he makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, if I don't do this, may I be torn in two. Abraham says, okay, got it. And then in verse 16, he turns around and has an illegitimate child with his servant. In Genesis chapter 17, God shows up again, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Many nations are going to come for you. Abraham believes. No. He laughs. He says, come on, man, I'm 100 years old. You're crazy. There's no way. Use my illegitimate son instead. You see, the kind of faith that Abraham had was not this strong, amazing faith. The kind of faith that Abraham had was this weak, almost pitiful faith. So why is this good news for us? Because it means that for us who have a faith like Abraham will be justified. Meaning those even with weak, stumbling, jumbling, tiny, immature faith will be justified and deemed righteous. But it gets even better because you guys might be wondering right now, like, wait, then why does Paul write about Abraham as if he were this flawless, perfectly strong, righteous, faithful man? Why does Paul do that? Is it because he's mistaken? Is it because Paul has had a slip of memory? No, I don't think so. Because Paul was a scholar. He was the scholar of scholars. He probably would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Plus, there would have been other people to kind of fact-check Paul here and say, hey, Paul, you're kind of slipping up here. That's not what happened. Instead, I think what Paul is doing here is he's trying to show us something. He's trying to show us what happens when we believe. You see, Abraham, with a weak, stumbling, tiny faith, is enough to justify the whole. And so that's why when Paul writes about Abraham, he doesn't write about the weak, sorrowful, pitiful Abraham. He writes about the Abraham justified wholly and completely by God. He rewrites Abraham's story, which is what happens when Christ covers us and calls us his. Now, you might be thinking like, okay, all right, what's going on here? Like, this seems kind of crazy. But, and hopefully I'm not, because I don't think this is the first time this happens. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the Hall of Faith. And this hall of faith talks about these grand figures of faithful people throughout scripture. But if you know the OT a little bit, you'll find that in the hall of faith, there are people who don't really seem to belong in the hall of faith. Case in point, two people, Samson. Samson was a strong guy. But Samson was a child who was dedicated to God. And so he was demanded to keep this thing called the Nazarene vow. And what did Samson do? He broke all the vows. And on top of that, he was a womanizer. You look at someone like Gideon. 
Gideon was a coward. God calls him. He was one of the judges. God calls him to action. Come on, Gideon, let's go. And Gideon's like, wait, 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 wait. God, can you prove it to me? And God says, okay, I'll prove it to you. All right, let's go. And Gideon says, wait, 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 wait. Prove it again, please. And God's like, okay, I'll prove it again. All right, let's go. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Four times he, he, he asked God, please prove it to me, man of weak faith. On top of that, the way he ends his story is not in this glamorous, faithful way either. Because the people at the end of Gideon's role say, Gideon, we want you to be our king. And Gideon says, no, 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 no. God is your king, not me. But then suspiciously, he names his kid Abimelech, which is son of the king. And yet, in Hebrews chapter 11, they're written about as if they were perfectly righteous. I think what's happening in Hebrews, what happens here, is that Paul is showing us when we believe, our stories are completely rewritten. And when God looks at us, the people of God, who trust even with tiny, weak, immature faith, we are deemed rewritten as perfect. Let me, let me try to explain, let me give this example. Um, in this podcast, This American Life, um, this interviewer is interviewing this Marine. And the Marine <clears throat> tells, uh, tells a story about how he came back from war and his friends would all you know, go at him and say, like, oh, what did you do? You know, what did you see? You know, who did you, you know, for little kids, who did you hurt? You know? And um, so the Marine would tell the stories. And he said, I quickly noticed that people began looking down at the ground in a way, got very uncomfortable, and stopped talking to him altogether. And he said, because of that, I just stopped telling people what happened. I just be like, oh, it was good. But then one day his friend came to him and he said, hey, look, what really happened there? And he said, so I told him. And he said, you know what was awesome about that conversation? You know what meant the world to me? Is that my friend kept eye contact with me. And the interviewer said, oh yeah, because that showed that he listened, right? He said, no, that's not it. He kept eye contact with me. Because anytime I told that story, people always looked away. But this friend kept eye contact. And he said, who do you look away from? What do you look away from? He said, you look away from a monster. So for the first time when this friend kept eye contact, he says, for the first time I didn't feel like a monster. What does God do? even with our tiny, weak, pitiful faith. He looks at our stories, the moments of foolishness, the moments of regret, the moments of shame, the moments of blatant disobedience towards God, the moments of subtle disobedience towards God, the moments that we're too afraid to share with other people because we're afraid of what they might think, what they might say. He looks at our stories and he doesn't turn away. Instead, he rewrites them in the blood of Christ. He rewrites our stories such that when God sees us, that when people recount who we were, we are no longer the weak, bumbling, stumbling, faithless folks of God, but we are deemed, redeemed, perfect, righteous people of God. That is what Christ does when he looks at our stories, when he rewrites our stories because of Christ. One final thought before we finish for today is this. Now, a little earlier, I was talking about the call, for, the call for all of us to grow in our consistency when it comes to things like friends and family, Sunday, and small group. And if I can reiterate again, our consistency when it comes to Sunday worship 
Now, you might be thinking, like, why? Why do I need to be consistent with Sunday worship? And I think it's because of this. I think because Sunday worship is one of God's most tangible ways of showing us this kind of love, this kind of grace to his people. Because Sunday morning, regardless of how you and I feel, regardless of how strong our faith is, what is always true? God always shows up. Regardless of how strong, regardless of how great I'm feeling that day, regardless of how much I've worshipped or how much I've neglected the Lord, He's always here. You see, Sunday worship, I think sometimes we get it twisted. Sunday worship, I think, sometimes we use Sunday worship or we think of Sunday worship as, here is my faithful act. Here is my faith shown off to God. Here is my faith in God present. When in reality, Sunday worship is, no, here is God's faithfulness to you. That's why when Pastor Andrew spoke, um, I believe, two, two, three weeks ago, he said, look at the order of worship. Who speaks first? It's not us. It's God. God calls. God invites. And he understands that week, throughout week, we're going to forget that our stories have been rewritten. We're going to forget that we've been redeemed, forget that we've been justified, forget that we've been righteous. And so God calls again week after week after week to remind you of his faithfulness, to remind you of his grace, to remind you that our stories have been rewritten thanks to the finished work of Jesus Christ. So friends, why do we need faith to be justified? Because the way God worked then is the way he works now. What should this faith look like? It should look like Abraham's weak, stumbling faith is enough to completely justify the whole And why is that really good news for us? Because even, again, in spite of our weak, stumbling, tiny faith, the Lord rewrites our stories, calls us His, redeems us. And now, when the saints or the Lord speaks about us, looks at us, we are deemed perfectly righteous, justified in His sight. Our stories have been rewritten, friends. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace that even with stumbling, jumbling, weak, pitiful faith, it's not our little faith that saves us, but our Savior, our strong and perfect Savior. And because of you, our stories have been rewritten. Help us to grow in what that means from day to day. Help us to look at our realities and to interpret them as you interpret them. Help us to see and experience the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, week in, week out. Give us grace because we so desperately need it. Give grace especially to those who are weak, stumbling, jumbling. We need your mercy. We need your grace. We ask for it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan, for making Jesus look so, so beautiful. Now, people of God, receive the benediction. Now, may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, the Father Almighty, who rewrites our stories, and the fellowship and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Now hear the words of dismissal, dear saints. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.